All right, we'll be starting in verse 11. After three months, we sailed in, in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was, was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed there three days. From there, we circled round till we reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Putelit, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Ipiform and, and the three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Thus they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You may be seated. Will you pray with me as we begin our study here in Acts 28? Father, we thank you that you are God who never fails us. You are a God who is 
in control of all things, our creator, the sustainer, the one who wakes us up in the morning. Father, we give you praise for waking us up this morning. We thank you for the breath of life that we have through you. We thank you for your new mercies this morning. Father, just now we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the journey that we've been on here with Paul in the book of Acts. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be able to see his ministry, his work. And Father, today we'll be able to also get a glimpse of the legacy. And Father, I pray that we too would come to understand not just these things about Paul, but I pray, Lord, you would impress these things in our own lives and help us to understand and to look at the things that we too are leaving behind. I pray that they would matter greatly for your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to hear this morning the truths from your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin where we started a long time ago, four summers ago. Jesus, back in chapter 1, Jesus spends 40 days following the resurrection in chapter 1, verse 3 of Acts. And he's preparing his followers for life after Christ. And the text says that he's speaking to them during those 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And shortly after that, a question arises as to whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which his followers have been called to wait for, there seems to be a question that comes out of the arrival of the Spirit. In verse 5, Jesus says, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then there's a question that comes, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And as I was thinking about that and thinking about the whole of the book of Acts, I was thinking how the disciples had a wrong question and they had a wrong connection. You see, because Jesus says in verse 7 that it is the Father in his authority who knows the times or the seasons. And baptism with the Holy Spirit is going to be connected to the power from on high. And the kingdom is not going to be restored to Israel at this time, but, and this is where we get to verse 8, but here's what's going to happen. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. And then we see that he ascends into heaven. He is gone out of their sight. I want you to note the concern and the focus that's given here in chapter 1 of Acts by Jesus. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And with that power, the the, the commission is witnessing to Jesus. Holy Spirit power enables one to witness to Jesus. I believe Jesus spent a great amount of time in the context of those 40 days from Acts 1 verse 3... I believe he spent a great amount of time explaining how his kingdom was going to advance through the power yet to come. This power was going to serve as the fuel for advancing God's kingdom. And the question that arises in verse 6 of chapter 1 comes out of an understanding merely of an earthly kingdom. 
was ruling at this time? The Romans. Roman rule. And so the question comes in light of the context. Will the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you're speaking of, will it change who's in charge? Will the Holy Spirit see to it that the kingdom is restored to Israel? And Jesus' response in Acts 1 verse 8 is not only the big picture theme of this book, but I believe it's a response that his listeners then, and perhaps his listeners here today, haven't been fully prepared for. You see, the Holy Spirit wasn't going to usher in a victory parade for Israel. But he was going to bring a gust of wind into the sails of God's followers. Moving them out of their secluded hiding places. Motivating them to speak for Jesus. Emboldening them with a good news message that would change forever the course of this world. See, the Holy Spirit was bringing power from on high. The power was brought from on high. And it's intended to transform the world here below. Think about that for a moment. Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the power from on high. That power from on high is to make a drastic difference in the lives of believers, followers of Jesus here below, here in this place. Last I checked, this world is still in great need of transformation. It was time for the follower of Jesus to advance the kingdom of God, to serve Jesus all of his days with the power that was given to him, to stop worrying about his own kingdom and submit under the authority of God's kingdom. You see, this was going to be a test because the kingdom of God, we read the gospels and we see one of the first mentions Jesus makes in the gospels He says, repent. What's he follow that up with? For the kingdom of God is near or at hand. You see, the kingdom of God was at hand while Christ walked the earth. But his departure changed things. He didn't leave us, praise God, as orphans. Tells us that in John's gospel. He didn't leave us as orphans, but he gave us instead another counselor, another helper, who was going to continue advancing God's kingdom in and through us. And that, my friends, is the message of this entire book of Acts. It's the life-transforming message of the gospel centered upon Jesus, his arrival to earth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Preached, explained, and lived out in accordance to the scriptures. Guided by the power of the Holy Spirit who was poured out on that Acts 2 day of Pentecost some 10 days after Jesus ascended. See, Paul gave his life to the cause of Jesus Christ. In fact, we see when we turn the page to Romans in chapter 1 verse 1, we see that Paul is a bondservant of Jesus. Called to be an apostle and he's separated to what? The gospel of God. We see just a few verses later in Romans chapter 1 that Paul himself is not ashamed of this gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And I think it's important for us to understand that Paul 
wrote the letter to the saints in Rome. He wrote that in 57 A.D. from Corinth. And here in Acts 28, it's now 60 A.D. And by the end of Acts 28, we're going to see that taking into account the two years he's in house arrest, it'll be 62 A.D. And so Luke is going to cover two years of history, of time in this final chapter. It's important for us also contextually to understand and know that Paul's heart was to go to Rome. How do we know that? Well, we know that for a couple reasons. One, that uh, back in Acts 19, verse 21, he's talking about after he's delivered the funds to the Jerusalem church of wanting to also go to Rome. It was a big city that he had not yet visited. You see, Paul had gone to Ephesus and he'd gone to Corinth and he'd gone to Athens, but he'd not yet been to Rome. And oftentimes the gospel was spread in the big cities and filtered out from the big cities into the other surrounding areas. And he was looking forward to going to Rome. We see from Romans chapter 1, 11 and 12 that Paul longed to see them. Why? For mutual encouragement. He, he longed to have mutual encouragement with those in Rome. We also see in Romans 1.15 that he was ready, it says he was ready to preach the gospel in Rome. He wanted to do that in Rome. We also see that Paul hoped to enjoy their company for a bit before journeying westward to Spain. There's a whole section in Romans 15 about him going to Rome and talking about Spain. And, and I believe in some regard he had this thought and vision of, of Rome being the new uh, headquarters, if you will, of the West... Sort of like Antioch served as the headquarters at a time when it moved out of Jerusalem. The church in Antioch was now the the hub. And I believe Paul had in mind this whole idea of going to Spain and using Rome as his hub, a new hub, whereby he would be able to commute and come back and forth to Rome. And we see in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 24, those words. But I believe as a general rule, a general understanding of Paul, we see that Paul has a heart for his countrymen, doesn't he? Not just in Jerusalem, but all around the Mediterranean, including involving even Rome. And we see that in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, we read about Paul's heart for his own countrymen. Paul, it seems, is not wishing to go to Rome for his own personal reasons. And I think it's important we understand this. He's going to Rome to further God's kingdom work. How do I know that? Well, already what we've read in this, just this summer alone in Acts 23, verse 11, we saw while he was still in Jerusalem, the Lord appeared to him and said, As you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. And we see, even while he's in the midst of the shipwreck, out at sea in Acts chapter 27, The Lord, an angel of the Lord appears to him at night and says, Do not fear, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. You see, Paul was not the only one with a desire to go to Rome. The Lord wanted him there as well. But in the path stood ambushes, crooked governors wanting to do the Jews a favor, waiting in prison, a storm at sea, shipwreck, a snake bite, more waiting here in Malta. There were many opportunities for Paul's life to be short-circuited and cut off, but God preserved and protected his servant to continue pressing on toward the goal 
of advancing God's kingdom through the spread of the gospel truth in Rome. Now, as we open the pages here in Acts 28 to verse 11, we see that three months have passed on the island of Malta. Warmer weather has arrived, it seems. The seas are now passable. And the captain of the Alexandrian ship that's going to be taking Paul and company, the captain is no doubt ready to get moving after his lengthy winter in Malta. And the trip itinerary, according to the scriptures, is as follows. And if you have a, a map, it's, it's really helpful with a map to be able to look at this too as we're reading this. But give you a brief summary of the itinerary. They're going from Malta to Syracuse. This is not Syracuse, New York. Syracuse, the island of Sicily. Okay? Going to Syracuse. This journey would have been about uh, an 80-mile journey. The, the scripture says there was three days that they stayed in Syracuse. And from there they circled around and reached Regium. From Syracuse to Regium. Regium on the map is the, uh, the toe of the boot of Italy. Uh, you think of Italy as ha- the boot? Uh, right on the toe of the boot is Regium. Okay? On the map. And, and that distance traveled there was about uh, 65 miles from Syracuse to Regium. And there was another one day layover. Oftentimes it's important to note when there's a layover when they stayed. Uh, many times they had to do with unfavorable winds. Okay, so uh, when they're staying or having a layover, uh, a lot of times it has to do with the wind not being favorable. We see that the itinerary continues. They go from Regium, and the next day they come to Puteoli. From Regium to Puteoli, we're looking at about 175 miles. At Puteoli, we are now 150 miles southeast of Rome. Okay, and so if we do the math, and we think on foot, 15 miles per day on average... That's 10 days from Puteoli to Rome in travel. When I add up all the days, it looks like just over three weeks. It took just over three weeks to get from Malta to Rome. And we see in the text that some brethren show up in Puteoli. And they were offering hospitality and and were allowed to stay there for seven days. And then verse 14 says, and so we went to Rome. Now the road that they traveled... To get to Rome was called the Via Appia, and, and it, along this road they encountered these other two towns or cities, the Appii Forum, which was located about 40 miles southeast of Rome. And about 10 miles down the road was the three taverns, 30 miles from Rome. And brethren were coming from Rome to greet Paul and make the journey with him back to Rome. And at this point, Paul was beginning to see the fruit of the Lord's guiding hand as he traveled the Via Appia toward Rome. And seeing the brethren brought joy to Paul. In fact, verse 15, at the end of verse 15, it says, When Paul saw them, the brethren, he thanked God and took courage. I'm sure for Paul, as he is on the road, he's now... 25, 30 miles away, and he's walking, traveling the rest of the distance to Rome. He's been reminded of God's protective hand upon him all along the way. And he's thanking God, and and he's taking courage. And friends, we can do that. We, We ought to be a people filled with gratitude for all that the Lord has done, all that God has done up to this point in our life. And as we see the hand of God in our lives, we too ought to take courage It ought to embolden us to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. For the Lord has done wonderful things through us as well. We see here in the text that upon arriving at Rome, the centurion, verse 16, 
hands off the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul is given permission to reside in his own rented house with another soldier guarding him. And so here we have the journey to Rome. The journey to Rome has finally happened. It's finally here. The journey to Rome. It's what we've been studying about and talking about over these last few months. It's been a journey. In fact, the journey to Rome is much larger than what we've read in Acts 21 through 28. Paul's life has been quite a journey, hasn't it? The kingdom of God has advanced in the process. And the Lord said it this way to Paul shortly after his encounter on the Damascus Road. In Acts chapter 26, as he's standing before King Agrippa, he's retelling the very words of the Lord on that road to Damascus. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 16, Acts 26. These are the words of the Lord to Paul. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness. To make you a minister and a witness. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And the question comes, for what purpose, Lord, do you send him? The text tells us, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Well, what difference will that make, Lord? The text answers it, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and that they may have an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, these are descriptors of two opposing kingdoms. Two opposing kingdoms. And what we see is uh, these kingdoms are outlined and we see them in different places in the scripture. But th- there's a place in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 where we see that God is light. God is light. In him there is no what? Darkness. He's light. In him there is no darkness. We see also in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It speaks of who you once were. When you were operating under Satan's power, you were, according to Ephesians 2, a child of disobedience. You were a child of wrath. You were a product of the prince of the power of the air. You have these two kingdoms at odds. And you have God's kingdom, which has been advancing. God's kingdom is on a journey, not only through Paul... It definitely includes Paul, not only Paul, but God's kingdom has been moving. In fact, we can go back into the book of Daniel in chapter 4. And many of you know and remember King Nebuchadnezzar and the humiliation that he went through. On the back end of his humiliation, he says this in Daniel 4 verse 34, speaking of the great God now that he serves. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. His kingdom, in fact, is bigger than Paul. But he advances his kingdom, we see here in the book of Acts, through surrendered vessels like Paul. And we go back to Acts 28, and we see that here in verse 16, Paul has concluded his journey to Rome. And so we ask the question, now what? Now what? Is it time to relax? Time to kick back a little bit? Time to take it easy? I mean, after all, he's got his own place. He's not having to hang out with all these other prisoners. He's got one soldier in particular that's guarding him. 
But he's got some freedom to move around a little bit. Well, the text says in verse 17 that it only took him three days. And Paul gathers together the leaders of the Jewish synagogues in Rome. And at this particular point in time, approximately 10 synagogues in in Rome. Some reported to be some 100,000 Jews uh, at this time. And the journey to Rome, while it's done, there's now work to do. There's now work to, to do in Rome. And so we see the journey take place in verses 11 through 16. We see the ministry or the work now in verses 17 through 29. Paul has work to do in Rome. And one of the first items of business to attend to is to gather the leaders of the Jews from these synagogues in Rome, to gather them together. And we see there in verse 17 that he's telling them how he had arrived in Rome as a prisoner. Though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, that would be the law, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And he then advocates his innocence, and he's citing the, uh, the kindness, really the, the favor by the Roman authorities. And he says there in verse 18 that the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for me putting me to death. But then he also tells them of his need to appeal to Caesar because in verse 19, when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled, he says, to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. Well, he's gathered the Jewish leaders together to share his journey, how he arrived as a prisoner, but he's also gathered them to assess the damage. You see, he doesn't know. Paul doesn't know, as he's talking to the leaders of the Jewish synagogues, he doesn't know how much, if any, these Jews had heard from Jerusalem. He doesn't know that. And so he's trying to assess what they've heard, what they know. And so what we see that comes next is Paul is is wanting to, at the end of verse 20, he's wanting to make sure that, that the Jews the leaders of the Jews in Rome, he wants to make sure they understand this one thing. Why he's in chains. He's in chains, the text says, for the hope of Israel. This hope of Israel is something that all of the Jews would have shared. Now, what we've come to see is that not all the Jews had the same understanding of that hope of Israel. But that's why, that's what Paul is putting forward here at the end of verse 20. He's wanting to make sure they understand why he's bound with this chain. And so the Jewish leaders then, they respond with, I believe, two helpful pieces of information. And one has to do with what they've heard about Paul. And the other has to do with what they've heard about Christianity. Or what they call this sect. Okay? About Paul, we see in verse 21. They say, we neither have received letters from Judea concerning you. Nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So in regards to Paul, no bad report. No bad news has been given to them. They go on from there to give Paul the second piece of information about Christianity. Concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So the Jewish leaders are curious to know more so that they can understand what this sect teaches. So they say there in verse 22, we desire to hear from you What you think. Now for Paul, that would just be an open door. They want to know what Paul thinks. They want to know what he thinks about this sect. 
about this Christianity, about this person, Jesus Christ. And so what they end up doing as a, as a takeaway from that meeting is they schedule another meeting. And so his second order of business is this meeting with not only the Jewish leaders again, but the constituents, some other folks, some other Jews, larger group comes. And verse 23 says, many came to his lodging. And I believe here the text helps us to answer some questions. There are three questions here that I believe are answered from the text. First of all, what is it that those gathered, what did they hear? Okay, that's the first question I believe the text answers. Secondly, how long were they present? And third, what was the result of the gathering? What was the takeaway? So let's look at the first question. What did they hear? The text tells us what they heard. When they came on that appointed day, many came to his lodging to whom he, he explained and he testified of the kingdom of God. He explained and he testified of the kingdom of God. So friends, the kingdom of God is explainable. It's explainable. It has definition to it. It's something that a follower of Jesus gives testimony to. And the key to understanding God's kingdom is the king of the kingdom. And the king of the kingdom would be Jesus. He's describing the kingdom of God. The text says that Paul explained and testified of the kingdom of God by the use of persuasion. Persuasion. He persuaded them concerning whom? Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. And remember that he's speaking to Jews, most of whom, most of whom have stumbled to this point over the king of God's kingdom. Right? The one that they referenced as the Messiah. The one Paul viewed as the Lord and Savior. Having fulfilled the prophecies of the scriptures in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection. This Messiah that the Jews were still waiting for. Paul spends time explaining and giving testimony to the fact that he's already come. He's persuading them concerning Jesus. They need to know the king of the kingdom. And I ask you this morning... As we see what Paul was doing, is persuasion on our radar when we speak to others about the kingdom of God? I was reading in a book this week, Oz Guinness and his new book called Fool's Talk. And he is speaking, it's in fact, it's a book about Christian persuasion. And he goes on and he says, this is all in the introduction of his book. He says, our urgent need is for the recovery of persuasion in order to address the issues of the hour. He says, we are less effective concerning our persuasion. He says, we're less effective when we encounter people who are not open, not interested, or not needy. In other words, people who are closed, indifferent, hostile, skeptical, or apathetic, and therefore require persuasion. In short, many of us today lack a vital part of a way of communicating that is prominent in the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures, but largely absent in the church today. Persuasion. And he goes on to define that. Being an art of speaking to people who, for whatever reason, are indifferent or resistant to what we have to say. They simply do not agree with us and are not open to what we have to say. And he concludes the introduction by asking a couple pointed questions. How can we speak for our Lord 
in a manner that does justice to the wonder of who God is. To the profundity of the good news that he's entrusted to us. To the wily stubbornness of the human heart and mind. As well as to the wide-ranging challenges of today's world. And the mind-boggling prospects of tomorrow's world. In short, how can we as followers of Jesus be as truly persuasive as we desire to be? Persuasion. Persuading others concerning Jesus. The text points us to something here, I believe, extremely important. What's, according to the text, what's the resource or tool from which we endeavor to persuade men? In Paul's case, it was the law and the prophets, right? The word of God, the law and the prophets for Paul. Paul was explaining, he was testifying, using persuasion all the while. This is important, church. All the while holding to the truths of the scriptures. Persuasion is not about who comes up with the best line of argument. It's not about a method. Persuasion is not about winning an argument. Going into it with that being your purpose. That you're going to win an argument. You see our persuasion is targeted at the soul. It's seeing them cross over from death to life. From darkness to light. From the power of Satan to the power of God. See this persuasion is intended to be laser focused on seeing them operate in another kingdom. To know the joy, to see them, to know this joy of walking in the light, bearing fruit in God's kingdom, forgiven, and also receiving this inheritance that the scriptures speak of that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. And as you're looking at the text this morning, perhaps you're wondering how you might persuade someone just simply using the law and the prophets. I'd like you to remember that you now have at your disposal the complete word of God all 66 books of the Bible. You have the New Covenant, the New Testament now available to you as well. You have the Gospels, you have the Epistles, you have the Pastorals, and you have the book of prophecy of what is yet to come in the book of Revelation. Use the Word of God that's been given to you. Effective persuasion from God's Word coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit, will bring about transformation. That's God's way. His word, his spirit, his people at work to bring others into his kingdom. And all the while, he gets the glory. In fact, we see examples of this. I'll give you just a few examples that we see in the scripture. Going all the way back to 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 34, King Josiah. You remember King Josiah? And Josiah's response in that chapter to finding the book of the law. What's he do? He gathers all of the men, all of the inhabitants, great and small, the text says. He gathers them all together. And it says that he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the law, book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. He wanted all of the people to hear what he had heard. He wanted them to hear this book of the law. And we see... A few pages later in the scriptures, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Remember when the people are gathered around the water gate and the word of God is being read. And Nehemiah 8, verse 8 says, They read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense 
and help them understand the reading. In fact, just a few verses later in Nehemiah 8, it says that they leave that day rejoicing. Why? Because they understood what the word had to say. They were rejoicing over an understanding of God's word. They had been given a sense of what the word says. We see it even in the book of Acts. If you flip backward in the book of Acts to chapter 8. We see the passage there in 26 through 40. Of Philip in the eunuch. And Philip encounters that Ethiopian in the chariot. And he's reading, remember, from Isaiah 53. And he has a question. And he invites Philip to come up into the chariot. And he asks him. And Philip opens his mouth, verse 35 of chapter 8. And beginning at this scripture in Isaiah 53, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. Paul's work in Rome is a continuation. It's a continuation of God's kingdom work. Explaining and testifying, bearing witness of the gospel truths found in God's Word. In fact, we can look at Christ himself in Luke 24. I'll give you one additional example that, that comes to mind because Christ himself did this. Remember that he, he jumps in the conversation with those two men on the road to Emmaus? And they're talking about things. Jesus is asking questions he already knows the answers to. But these guys are, you know, it's the third day and, you know, there's been report that he's not there, his body's gone. And in Luke 24, 27... It says that in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself was doing this. Talking to people from the word. Reminding them from the word. And so we have here this example of Paul explaining, testifying, bearing witness of the gospel truth. It's a work of persuasion. And if we trace the missionary journeys of Paul... We see a couple things. We see that he's preaching the word of God. He's preaching the truths of the gospel. But he's also preaching Jesus Christ, the truth himself. In fact, we see in his time in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 38 and 39, he says, through this man, that's Jesus, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Ties into what Paul said about Christ in Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. The work of the kingdom is summed up right here in Paul's life. It's preaching and teaching and living out the gospel truths. His arrival, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we await his return. But it's also preaching and teaching and living as Christ would live. That we are a follower of the truth. We are a believer, but we're a follower of Jesus. So preaching the truths of God's word and preaching Christ, it's important for us to understand this as we walk this way. It will land us on the wrong side of the fence with many people today. Might result in some suffering. 
might result in some persecution. In Acts 14, verse 22, shortly after Paul was stoned in Lystra, Paul and his companions, they journey back through Lystra and Iconium and Derbe. From a human perspective, that wasn't very smart. But they go back through, and their purpose in going back through is to strengthen the disciples. And they said, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You see, there's a journey in God's kingdom work. And the journey will take you down trails of tribulation and suffering. It will include the fires of testing. But it's all worth it. It's all worth it. And Paul explains and he testifies and he's persuading them that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now the second question here is how long did they hear about Jesus? Well, we look at the text at the end of verse 23. From morning till evening. From morning till evening. Sun up, sun down. They heard about Jesus. What was the result? Was there any response to God's word preached on this particular occasion? Verse 24 says, some were persuaded or some believed by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. Some believed, some didn't believe. Now that's the pattern evident throughout the book of Acts. Some believed, some choose not to believe. The question comes, how do you respond to those who choose not to believe? How do you choose to respond? What does Paul do here in the text in verses 25 through 28? What he does is he reinforces the truth of God's word to those entrusted with God's word. Those entrusted, these are, remember he's speaking to a Jewish audience. He's speaking to a Jewish audience who had been entrusted with the very oracles of God, Romans chapter 3. They had been entrusted with all the privileges of the covenants and the promises, given the oracles of God. And so what's Paul doing? He's reinforcing this word back to them, to those specifically who have chosen not to believe. And he says the Holy Spirit, picking it up in 25, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through, the, through Isaiah the prophet uh, to our fathers, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Now, this, as you read it, probably sounds a little familiar to you. If it does, it's good reason that it sounds familiar because Jesus used it in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, it's all centered around the parable of the sower. As the question comes about hearing the message of the parables. Why do you speak in parables? And this is where Jesus comes and, and addresses and gives them the answer in the context of the, the parables. The mysteries of the kingdom being revealed. In fact, we see in Matthew chapter 13, 11 through 17, in Mark chapter 4, 11 and 12, and Luke 8, 9 and 10, where he's covering, in the context of the parables, all three of those, those gospels. And then we get to John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, it's slightly different context 
uh, the theme itself is the same, but slightly different context. It's not the parables. When you get to John 12, verse 37, it says, But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw the glory and spoke of him. You see, that's contextually from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. If you read Isaiah 6, one of the things you see as Isaiah is, is hearing these words, Isaiah has been commissioned to speak these very words to the people who have grown rebellious and stubborn. This was in many ways a word of judgment to the people. And Isaiah has just finished up. Remember the question that comes to Isaiah Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me to do what? Well, right on the heels of send me, the Lord gives him these words that we're reading here in Acts 28, 25, and 26, 27. Those are the words. That's the context behind the words. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. That's what verse 27 says. Paul is speaking a hard word. We would call it a rebuke. He's speaking a rebuke to the Jews who have chosen not to believe that this Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that they too long for. And you read this and you might find yourselves somewhat at ease as you're reading this here in Acts 28, thinking Paul's rebuking those who don't believe. I believe, therefore I'm okay. And I would ask this morning, are you really okay? Have the hearts of this people grown dull? Have you grown dull of hearing God's truths concerning Jesus? Have you grown dull of Christ's church? You come, you sit in the chair, and some, while you would probably never verbalize it, some may at least think, I'm taking my medicine. I'm doing my check the box. You leave. But deep down you know that there's no ongoing work happening in the heart. You know there's very little love for God. There's very little passion. There's very little attention given to his word, if any. There's, there's little left for this Lord that you said yes to following. How is it that we have little to offer the one who gave his life's blood on our behalf. And now all of a sudden, this message has gotten personal. And for some, slightly uncomfortable. If your heart this morning has grown dull toward the Lord, and you are in Christ. Let me correct you from God's word. Not my opinion. From God's word. In fact, that's the beauty of God's word. It's profitable not just for teaching, not just for rebuke, but it's also profitable for correction. So let me point you to that correction. Through the person we've been reading about here over these last four summers. 
Paul in Acts 26. Here it is. Repent. Repent from your sins. Repent from your dull heartedness toward the Lord. Secondly, turn to God. In faith, turn to God. Turn to his word. Open his word, expecting to hear from him. Walk in the way that he's instructed. And third, do works befitting a repentant life. Repent from your sins. Turn to God. Do works befitting a repentant life. In other words, walk like you're talking. Live out. Let your behavior be what you believe. See, kingdom work is never easy work. But it's simple. It's never easy work, but, but it's simple. And really, it's, I think, defined in that, that hymn we sing oftentimes, trust and what? Obey. It's pretty simple. It's hard work, but it's pretty simple. Trust and obey. Take God at his word. Walk by faith, trusting that what he says he will do. And Paul goes on and he says in verse 28, he says, Because your hearts have grown dull, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And here's the thing. Paul can say, as the Mediterranean world can testify, they will hear it. They'll hear it. Paul's calling was to go to the Gentiles with the gospel truths, persuading them with the truth, Jesus, from the scriptures, always desiring to recognize the Holy Spirit's work, to see them turn to light from darkness, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so we have the journey and we have the ministry or the work in verses 17 through 29, these last Two verses. By the way, verse 29 in some of your translations is there and some of them it's not. In some of the manuscripts that's left out. And when he had said these words is what it says in the New King James. The Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. That's when they walked away after hearing this word from Isaiah. But these last two verses in verses 30 and 31. Luke leaves us with a picture of Paul leaves what I just call the legacy. We've talked about the journey. We've talked about the ministry or the work and, and the legacy. The legacy. These last two verses essentially are a summary of what he did for the two years in his own rented house. He preached the kingdom of God. There's that phrase again, the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the kingdom of God is mentioned right up front in Acts and it's right at the end of Acts. He preached the kingdom of God and he taught the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like he was doing for two years what he did in that second meeting with the Jewish people. I don't think Paul did anything differently. All that came, he received them, he welcomed them. He preached the kingdom of God and he taught the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And you may be inclined to be disappointed at some level, as you get to the end of Acts 28, 
Because as you're reading and you get to the end, you probably, if you're an astute reader, an observer of the text, you probably have a few questions. You probably notice there are some things not here at the end of Acts. First of all, there's no word on the court hearing before Caesar. Right? He was making his appeal to go to Rome before Caesar. We don't have any word on this hearing. There's no word on Paul's release from prison. There's no word on whether Paul dies while he's there in prison. There's no word on Paul's further travels. We see elsewhere that he had intended to go to Spain. And we have no other news of his additional travels at the end of Acts. So since Luke doesn't share some significant details at the end of Acts, what are we to conclude? Well, I believe this. I believe Luke ends on point as he's moved by the Holy Spirit in writing. And as we come to the scriptures and as we we come across some of these places where there seems to be an absence of some questions we still have, we don't have answers to here. We can always be certain that the Lord didn't just forget. He didn't just forget to include certain details. He's given to us, in fact, through Luke, exactly what we need to know. So, I believe that he's pointing us in these last two verses, not to Paul, but to the Holy Spirit's continuing work through Paul. I believe he's pointing us to what really matters in this life, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ, and to do it with all boldness. I believe that he's captured the legacy not only for Paul, but for each one of us here who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation. You see, many of you consider a legacy to be something you leave to the generations to come. And it is that. But we need additional clarity on the definition. You see, the legacy that you leave is not centered on all the great trinkets left behind for your children and grandchildren. The legacy that makes all the difference points away from you and onto the one who made all the difference in your life. The legacy that makes all the difference points away from you and onto the one who has made all the difference in your life. Now Paul used these two years to write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And as part of my study this week, I went back and I was reading those epistles. I was reading them in a fresh light. Reading them, really thinking through Paul, now having arrived in Rome, he's in house arrest, and reading what he has to say through that lens. And I'd like to share with you a few things that I found out. And there are passages that I'm sure you're familiar with, But in light of what we're reading, in light of this legacy, I was drawn to Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about that armor of God. And I couldn't help but think about how he's describing the pieces of the armor and the armor of the Roman soldier. And now here's Paul, and he's he's in house arrest, and he's... Some people think he's actually chained to or nearby. There's There's a soldier there guarding him. And the picture of the soldier was was there all the time, every day, for two years for Paul. And he uses that in part in what he's writing to the church at Ephesus 
to describe this armor of God that needs to be put on. In the book of, book of Philippians, in chapter 1, there's a, there's a whole series there in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, where Paul is saying that his chains have produced an advancement of the gospel. And at the end of Philippians, I love this, at the end of Philippians, and a lot of times in his letters he'll have a greeting. You know, tell so-and-so I said hi, or he'll send a greeting from someone where he's at to them as he's writing. And he says at the end of chapter 4 in Philippians, the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Especially those who are of whom? Caesar's household. What's Paul been doing? Paul has borne fruit in Rome among Caesar's household. That's what he's been doing. And it makes you wonder after a time when these guys come in, I'm sure they had shifts. I'm sure it wasn't the same guy all the time for two years. I'm sure there was a group of guys that kept coming in watching over Paul. And a new guy comes in and Paul's eyes light up. Another opportunity. Another opportunity. Another opportunity. And there were some in Caesar's household who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians chapter 1. This was a reminder to me of the kingdom that we're talking about here in the text. And in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes that he, the Lord, he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins that transfer from one kingdom to another. God has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And then there's that line in the book of Philemon, verse 10, which is speaking of Onesimus. And he says in verse 10, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains. So we see evidence here of Paul ministering to Helping Onesimus come to know this Jesus of the scriptures. Onesimus came to know the Lord through Paul's time in chains. How is it that a man can be chained and yet make such a difference for God's kingdom? He's chained. He's, he, he can't go anywhere. He's chained. He has some liberties, but he's chained. But as Paul says to Timothy a few years down the road while he's again in prison... He's saying how he's suffering as a prisoner in these chains. But then he goes on and says that this word of God is not chained. You see, the word of God is not chained. And the legacy here is before us in chapter 28. It's a life consumed with preaching and teaching Jesus with all confidence and boldness. No one forbidding. In fact, in the original text, the last word of the book is unhindered. That's the last word. Unhindered. This was the context in which he preached. No one forbidding him. He was unhindered. Those who came, he welcomed them, and he preached, and he taught. He explained to them. He testified to them of this gospel, and he persuaded them concerning the Christ. And I believe that Luke here is holding forth the keys to sustaining a legacy that will endure through the generations. Paul made the journey. He ministered to those in Rome. He only has a few more years. If we read the entirety of the New Testament, we see that he's only got another five years before he's going to end up in prison again, awaiting execution by Emperor Nero. 
He only has a few short years left to live. Perhaps Luke, in these final two verses, is asking us a few questions. Perhaps one, he may be asking, will you go? Well, the Lord is calling. And with the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, will you be a witness to a world here below? Secondly, I wonder if he's asking the question, will you now boldly advance the kingdom of God from this time forward? Almost as though it's a baton exchange. Will you now go? Will you now boldly advance the kingdom of God from this time forward? And thirdly, will you truly follow Jesus? Persecutions, sufferings, trials and all. Will you follow Jesus across the finish line of life? And I believe that Luke would desire that we see our legacy. And that our legacy leaves the spotlight on Jesus. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion. That's the song we're going to sing. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let it be said of us. Listen to the lyrics in the song that we're going to sing because I believe it expresses in many ways what perhaps Luke would desire of us to gather, to get, to grab a hold of as we come to the end of the book of Acts. There are some details that are absent, but I believe what is there speaks volumes to us and asks some very pointed questions of us. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the journey that you've taken us all on. Our journey has us here this morning on August 23rd, 2015. Father, you have blessed us in so many ways. And I pray this morning that we would take inventory and evaluate all that's gone on in our lives. That we would take inventory of what you've called us to and to realize that crossing over from death to life is but the beginning. Just as Paul, when he got to Rome, it was the beginning. There was still work to be done. And Lord, I pray you would remind us and impress upon each one of us here that being a follower of Jesus... Includes work. There's work to be done in the days that you have given to us. May we be a people desiring the work. May we be about work partnering with your Holy Spirit, partnering with your Word, partnering with those in the body, other believers. And may we continue to advance the kingdom of God here in our days. And I pray, Father, that as people would look back on our lives, that they wouldn't just talk about how so-and-so liked his sports, so-and-so liked his movies, so-and-so liked to fish, so-and-so liked to, and we can just make our own list of things that we are consumed in today. And I pray that it would be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that the next generation and the generation after that would know that we were people who truly desired to follow Jesus with our heart and mind, soul, strength. I pray that would be our legacy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.